You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. For our Old Testament reading, uh, please turn to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah 59, verses 14 through 21. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand and and turn to 2 Peter Chapter 3, for our New Testament reading. Second Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets And the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God, And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. 
But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Before I pray, uh, this is the final week of Advent, and we began the last few weeks um, considering the fact that, that at the heart of what the Christian faith is, we are to behold Jesus, to see him in his glory and his majesty and his beauty. And then it's in beholding Jesus, this one that we anticipate, this one that we long for, um, that is the means, the mechanism that the Spirit uses to transform us. Considered week two, the fact that Jesus is the fountain of living waters, that we go to him to drink and that drinking from him, um, then those streams of living water by the spirit of God then flow to the nations, bringing life to every corner of the world. Last week, we considered the precious and beautiful promise that Jesus is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Not only in Jesus are we forgiven, But actually, in Jesus Christ, all of our sins um, um, are taken away from us. They're they're delivered somewhere else so that they're no longer yours. Um, You no longer carry them. So before the Father, um, you are completely holy. Um, And so this week, we turn um, to a particularly central theme to the season of Advent. Advent has been, um, throughout the history of the church, less about kind of warm fuzzies, um, less about... Uh, Santa Claus is ringing bells incessantly at Home Depot. Um, it has been uh, for the vast majority of church history um, about anticipating, longing for, learning as a people um, to wait for the return of Jesus to come. Um, we, uh, we talk often, we don't, uh, but the church in general um, usually uses the themes of hope and peace and those things uh, for Advent. Traditionally, actually, in the early years, um, centuries of the church, uh, the traditional themes that would be preached on and taught on um, and meditated on during the season of Advent um, was death, judgment, hell, and heaven, um, which is just kind of a fun sermon series, right? Welcome, get ready for Christmas. This week we're talking about death. This week we're talking about judgment. This week, that'd be fun. Um, but it's all been about anticipating the second coming of Christ. This week uh, we consider... Um, a, a rather difficult text here in Second Peter 3, but to consider what it is we wait for and how do we wait well. Um, and so uh, that's where we're going to be going um, this morning. But first, I want to pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, I ask now for your help, God, that your spirit would come and help me to communicate clearly and faithfully and compellingly the beauty of Jesus your sovereign guidance over history that comes out to us and is presented to us in this text. God, that you would teach us what it means to wait patiently with the God who is patient. But what it means to, to be marked by repentance and faith and hope, even when we anticipate the day of judgment. So God, come and lead us that you'd be honored, that your people would be strengthened and encouraged. Those who don't know you would come to faith to believe in Jesus and put all of their hope and trust in Jesus, to drink deeply from Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. 
my favorite things to consider, to, to even just imagine in my mind, is the final week of Jesus' life. When you step into the gospel accounts of the last week of Jesus' life, um, they are filled with all kinds of political tension and social tension. Um, they're marked by um, this, um, this growing kind of incensedness um, from the different parties involved. You have uh, the, the massive crowds gathering in Jerusalem for Passover. Um, uh, most scholars would say that number would be somewhere between 50 and 100,000 additional people um, gathered in the city, whispering and then shouting and then singing, excited about the coming of Jesus to Jerusalem, thinking this is now the time um, when Israel would be finally and completely redeemed. Uh, you have the, the, the terror and the anger and then the plotting and sneaking around uh, of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, and the priests. And, and this is surprising because those three, those, those three groups never got along about anything except once in all of history, and that was about killing Jesus. And so you have kind of all the intrigue as they try to test Jesus um, and trap Jesus in his words, and then ultimately use trumped up charges, misconstrued charges, um, to then see him put to death. Then you have Jesus' own disciples, and this is actually my favorite. Um, you, you can almost feel their excitement, their anticipation as they approach Jerusalem. As You can imagine it as they um, come into the city, Jesus riding on a royal donkey um, um, in fulfillment of prophecy. You can feel their excitement, and, and then all of their hopes dashed by Jesus <laughs> as they go into the temple. And rather than Jesus initiating a revolution rather than Jesus calling everyone to arms and overthrowing the Romans and establishing his throne and the authority of his disciples. Instead, he flips over tables and pronounces judgment in the temple, which then leads to um, an often discussed and debated, but I think vastly underestimated moment in the final week of Jesus' life. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record what happens when Jesus and the disciples leave Jerusalem. Um, and, and what happens is, as Jesus begins to teach him and explain to them what he'd done with the fig tree and what he did in pronouncing judgment on the temple. In predicting a, a day that would come, um, we, we underestimate it because we, we don't see how central it was um, to much of the work of the early church particularly in the first five decades um, following the coming of Jesus. You see, Jesus, uh, walking with the disciples, having pronounced the judgment of God on the temple and upon the city of Jerusalem, the disciples are shell-shocked, and as they're coming out from Jerusalem, they're, they're um, ascending the Mount of Olives, um, you can hear them. And in the, in the, the Gospels, um, the Gospels record them as saying, Look, Jesus, look at these beautiful buildings which I always found to be odd. Like everything that unfolds and now they're walking out of the city and the disciples are making some architecture comments. What's happening here? They're shocked. They have no idea what's going on. They've seen Jesus enact this judgment and they say to Jesus, we're confused, what's happening here? 
Like, look at those stones. Look at those buildings. Um, surely this is the sign of God's blessing. Surely this is the home of God. Surely this is the place where God himself dwells in the midst of the nations. And then what Jesus unpacks in Mark 13, in Matthew 24, and in Luke 21, is a terrifying prediction of God's judgment. It's described as the Son of Man, Jesus himself, coming on the clouds to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. He says, not one stone will be left upon another. He describes the scene as, as the streets running with blood. Um, that, that If you um, anticipate these days, you should do everything in your power to get out of Jerusalem, to get out of the city as soon as you possibly can. In fact, pray that you're not pregnant on that day. Um, pray that you're not encumbered by children because you need to get out of the city fast because God is going to come in judgment and destroy it. And then he makes an interesting addition to this prophecy. He puts it on a timeline. He says, this generation will not pass away till you've seen these things come to pass. And in the combination of that timeline and that prediction, you have the problem that we're confronted with in 2 Peter chapter 3. And for us to understand what's unfolding in this chapter, because there's a lot of different scenes, a lot of different images, a lot of different things that are happening here, um, a couple of things need to happen. But the main thing that needs to happen is we need to kind of undo our, our sort of pietistic or Gnostic view of history and how God relates to history. You see, the Bible actually holds out for us concrete promises, concrete prophecies that we can actually look at and see as they've unfolded in the biblical narrative and in the, the, the story of history. He predicts the first fall of Jerusalem, sending prophets, particularly Jeremiah, to say, hey, this day is going to come. Um, God is going to destroy this city in judgment because of your idolatry. And you're going to be dragged off by Babylon. And it happens. Like it actually happens. And that was the judgment of God. He predicts the fall of the Babylons, that, that, um, that another nation will be raised up to destroy them for their godlessness and for this, their mistreatment of Israel. And it happens. And then Jesus comes and pronounces the judgment of God that because Israel has refused their king, because they've refused the mercy of God and the kindness of God, um, God will come and destroy the city. And in 70 AD, it happens. And we tend to think of the providence of God or the judgment of God or the mercy of God in kind of disembodied terms. We think of God's judgment and God's mercy as all being contained in some existence outside of history. But the way that the Bible tells the story of history is that those judgments and that mercy actually unfold in real time in our world. You see, this is what Jesus, what God does. His judgments in history are terrible. 
whether we're talking about the first fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of Babylon, the destruction of Jerusalem, those, one of the most horrific events in history in 70 AD, or ultimately the fall of Rome herself. When God sets out to judge a people, he does it. Not theoretically, but concretely. These judgments are real, and therefore his mercy is precious. So with that in mind, kind of getting back into understanding the historical nature of God's actions, that he actually moves and acts and speaks and saves and judges in real time, I want us to look at Second Peter chapter 3. And Peter is writing to a church where scoffers and false teachers have come in. This is a pattern you see throughout the New Testament. Um, in fact, we wouldn't have the New Testament if this pattern hadn't had happened. Um, so God in his kindness let them go through endless irritations. Um, which was uh, an apostle comes in, establishes a church, appoints elders, teaches for a while, then leaves. And sure enough, a couple weeks later, uh, false teachers show up, start distorting the gospel, start transforming the gospel. I'm um, usually trying to create all kinds of legalistic rules around the gospel, um, usually trying to add to um, the proclamation concerning Jesus. Um, and then the church gets all spun around. Um, and this largely existed because you had three groups of people kind of all interacting together in every city throughout Rome. You, you had um, the, the, the Jews, you had the Christians, and then you had the Gentile Romans. And those three groups were constantly kind of um, navigating a, a tenuous relationship um, that would ultimately result in first persecution from the Jews against the Christians, and then ultimately persecution from Rome against the Christians um, and so in Second Peter, you have Peter writing to a church um, where some Jewish deniers, so these aren't Jewish Christians, um, these are those who are trying to kind of subvert um, the teaching about Jesus uh, altogether, all trying to say Jesus isn't who he said he was, um, and they are scoffers. At the heart of this text, and it's going to be our primary theme today as we think about how to live right now, um, it's where Peter begins his text is he calls the people of God to remember, to remember, to remember, to remember. It's a central theme as we face scoffing, as we face false teaching, we face questions about what God is actually up to right now. It's the same for these believers in the first century. Peter is probably writing about mid, uh, mid-50s, late-50s, um, and so uh, things haven't really started getting ramped up yet in Jerusalem. And so then we come to chapter 3, verse 1. It begins with this announcement, this uh, description of what's happening in this church and in this city at the time. So listen, he says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. The scoffers are going to come up, they're going to start making fun of you, and they're going to begin mocking you, they're going to begin scoffing at all of the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, 
What is it going to sound like? Well, this is what it's going to sound like. Verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So these scoffers come in, and what are they making fun of the Christians for? The well-known and widespread prediction or prophecy or promise of Jesus that Jerusalem would be destroyed and that it would happen within the lifetime of this generation. That some standing with Jesus who heard him give this prediction, including Peter, would actually see it happen. So, stakes are high here. The Old Testament, the prophet spoke, his prediction wasn't fulfilled, he was stoned to death. So Jesus, speaking as a prophet, standing outside of Jerusalem, says to his disciples, some of you are going to see this happen. And what's going to happen is that city is going to be thrown down. Its people are going to be massacred. This will be the judgment of God because they've rejected Jesus. They murdered Jesus. So here we are. Year 55, some of the disciples are starting to die. James is dead. Paul will die. Peter's going to die soon in Rome. And it still hasn't happened yet. See the problem. And the longer it goes that it doesn't happen, the louder the scoffers can get and the more leverage they have um, as false teachers over these people. It, It might happen like this. Someone comes in, says... Tell us about what you believe. You believe in Jesus. What did Jesus do? Report what the Gospels say about Jesus, what Jesus said and did. Then they look at their watch, or they pull up their calendar, probably. And they said, well, that's interesting. He said that was going to happen when? Before the apostles died. Did you hear James died? He's dead. He was an apostle. Why do you believe this stuff? It's crazy. You guys are crazy. That's how that false teaching would go. And the question comes, where is the promise of his coming? What coming? The coming judgment. So then Peter answers this in a, in a very confusing way. And this is where the text gets really hard. Um, and so I want to walk through it relatively quickly, uh, but I want us to understand it. So so look with me, verse five. For they deliberately, these false teachers, these scoffers making fun of the prophecy, the terrifying prophecy and promise of Jesus, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, 
But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Um, two things, uh, to, well, one thing to keep in mind, and then let's, I want to look at how he breaks this down. First, um, when the Bible talks about the heavens, particularly the heavens and the earth, um, it's not usually talking about like space, like where the stars are up there. It's talking about the, the presence of God. It's talking about the place of God's dwelling, which isn't like in outer space. Um, we, we would talk about it in terms of this age or what we are enjoying together as the people of God is that we gather together on Sundays in the heavenlies. So, so where we sit right now is in heaven, like right this moment. Crazy, right? Um, but that's how the Bible would talk about the heavens. And, and in the heavens, the, the heavens have a structure, they have an order, they have a, a way in which God's authority is exercised. So it's exercised through rulers, um, and it's actually facilitated um, through the worship of God's people. And so in the old age, it was done um, in the temple and in the tabernacle. When you went into the temple and the tabernacle, um, it was designed to look like two things. First, it was designed to look like a garden, a place where man and God dwelled together which was the first temple, and second, it was made to look like the sky. So so it would be filled with stars, it would be filled with clouds, it would be filled with things um, to to make you um, imagine, to to remind you when you walked into the temple, you weren't just walking into a building that had kind of symbolic religious significance, you were walking into the heavenlies, the very presence of God. Now we're modern thinkers, shaped by secularism. So we think that's stupid. You're not in the heavens, you're in a building. Joe built this building. Joe didn't build the heavenlies. This is not how the world is. This is not how the world actually is. But when you stepped into the temple, you stepped into the presence of the God of the universe. You stood at his Footstool, really. But when you come into this room and we gather in this room and we begin singing and we open with a call to worship and we confess our sins and we sing these offerings in the presence of God and we hear his word declared, when we come to this table, we do so in the heavenlies. Like, really? And so when the Bible talks about the destructions of the heavens, it's not saying that the space-time universe is going to burn up with fire and everything's going to go away. He's saying one way of coming into the presence of God, one way of knowing the authority of God, one way um, by which the world was ordered and structured is going to go away and a new one will be established. So that's the symbolism behind this text. And then you'll notice these strange things that they deliberately overlook. And it said he tells kind of a three-arid or three-aged version of history. First, you have the heavens and earth as they were created. And then something happens at the flood, such that they're deluged. I love that word. They're deluged with water, and they passed away. And then there was... A new age, a new heavens and earth. It was established, 
that right now, Peter says, is being prepared for fire, to be burned up and destroyed, such that a new heavens and earth is an established one in which righteousness dwells. And that fire, that, that burning up of the heavens and earth that exists now, at least when Peter's speaking, is the age the heavens ordered around the temple in Jerusalem, ordered around the nations living in darkness, ordered around the gospel only really belonging to one small people um, living off the coast of the Mediterranean in one small part of the world. And what Jesus predicted is that not just that one temple and one city would be destroyed, but in the destruction of that city, in the judgment of God against that city, a new age, a new heavens, a new earth, a new world would be born. A whole new way of coming into the presence of God. A whole new way of enjoying the forgiveness of sins. A whole new way that would be opened up. Um, uh, You didn't have to come and be circumcised and become a Jew in order to enjoy all the gifts of the covenant of God. No, by believing in Jesus in this new heavens and earth, the nations could know him. His righteousness would go from Jerusalem to all the nations of the earth. So what Peter says is these scoffers, these mockers, they overlooked the fact that God has already done it once. He intends to do it again. And then it sets for us a pattern. You see, God intends to destroy wickedness, to destroy rebellion. And and in history, he does it over and over and over again. There's two things going on in this text that I want us to consider. First, just the historical reality that Peter's confronting, the fact that the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen. God doesn't stop from doing it. He's going to go on in a minute and explain why. It may seem like God is going slow in the year 55. He's not slow. But the other thing at the root of this is to consider again the question, what is God like? Which is to say at Advent, when the people of God hope for the coming of Jesus. What are we hoping for? And I don't think we think often enough. The coming of Jesus entails the coming judgment of God. And I think as a result of that, we do not think often enough of the kindness of God. Say it again. I think when we consider the coming of Jesus, which I don't think we consider often enough, we don't consider the fact that the coming of Jesus, both when he, when he comes to destroy Jerusalem, uh, but then as he comes again um, to reign as king and judge over all the nations of the earth, over all the cities, not just Jerusalem, and not just then Rome, but Denver, Colorado, and Lakewood, Colorado, and Nevada, Colorado, and Aurora, Colorado, and Wheat Ridge, Colorado. That when he comes, attending him will come the judgment of God. 
And because we don't think often enough about the judgment of God, um, because oftentimes we're just caught up in seeing darkness, we see what appears to be growing darkness at times, particularly in our age, um, uh, we, we, we see what looks like the, the rampant spread of wickedness and evil and injustice and murder and abuse and horrific things. But we don't often think in the middle of that, I, I think I find myself even in the, in the midst of that, saying things like, how long, O Lord? Which is a perfectly appropriate prayer to pray according to Scripture. But do you know what you're asking for? And then could it be that in the delay of God, what appears to be the delay of God, we do not consider enough the kindness of God to delay his judgments. Look with me at verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on them will be exposed. I want us to meditate on, during the season of Advent, the patient kindness of God. Yes, consider the horror of his judgments. He brought destruction on Jerusalem for its refusal of King Jesus, their obstinate refusal of his mercy and his kindness. Very few events in history have been as horrible as what took place in 70 AD. They murdered his son. And for decades, decades, he sent apostle after apostle and for centuries before, sending prophet upon prophet upon prophet, pleading with them. Turn. Come and receive mercy. Come and receive forgiveness. Come into the full inheritance of what you were made to have and to be. You see it even in Paul, the mercy of God. Um, In Romans 9, as Paul describes the very nature of his mercy, going from city to city to city, pleading, um, uh, pleading with the Jews by proclaiming the good news to the Gentiles in the hopes um, that the Jews who had rejected Jesus would see the blessings of God being poured out on the nations and out of jealousy would come to believe in Jesus and repent of their sin. You see this kind of urgency in the early decades of the church um, as they pleaded with people to come and know Jesus as they pleaded with the Jews in synagogue after synagogue after synagogue and in Jerusalem itself saying, come and believe in Christ. Turn from your sins. God sending in his patience and his kindness 
word to turn, to believe, to receive mercy. Fifteen years, ten years, ten to fifteen years. After Peter writes these words, Titus and a Roman army will march on Jerusalem, tear down its walls, and burn the temple to the ground. But even now, at this moment, the gospel goes forth and pleads those who would face judgment to turn, to repent. Why does that word go forth? Because God is patient and kind. So I ask you to consider in our day the judgments that are guaranteed, promised by God to come. Do you consider often enough the patience and the kindness of God? If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you're alive right now because of the patience and the kindness of God. Calling you to come. Turn away from sin. Turn away from the folly of idolatry, that which would destroy you, um, the folly of sin and addictions and wickedness and and refusal to acknowledge God and delight in God and to love his mercy. Um, God even now is patient and kind, pleading with you. Come and believe. Advent sits smack dab in the middle between the the coming of Jesus, the establishment of a new heavens and a new earth, um, a whole new way of coming into the presence of God, a whole new way of having your sins washed of you. Um, You no longer have to go to Jerusalem. You no longer have to become a Jew. You don't have to get circumcised. This is good news. Um, Like you are welcomed into the presence of God in Jesus. um, And yet, as we stand in this age, he is patient and kind and judgment has been promised. Evil will not persist forever. As destruction came against Jerusalem, so the promise is that all the darkness in the world will be burned. So come. He's so good. He's so patient. He's so kind. And he forgives. He forgives all of it. He, 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 more than that, he takes your sins away. And more than that, he clothes you as a son, as a daughter. And, and this is where things get insane. He, he invites you in to inherit everything. not slow to fulfill his promise the promise of judgment but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance don't be fooled the day of the Lord 
the day of God's judgments. He'll come like a thief. And all the darkness will be burned. So, how do we live in that moment? That is the question of Advent. Between the comings of Jesus, how shall we live? Peter says, look at me, verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening, the coming of the day of God? So, four things we're to do in the meantime, according to this text. First, remember. Remember particularly that his judgments are promised and his judgments are terrible. Say that again. And it's vitally important that you remember these things as unpleasant as they may seem. His judgments, his judgments are promised and they are terrible. He has promised to destroy wickedness. He has promised to destroy injustice. He's promised to burn with fire all idolatry. He's promised to consume lust. He's promised to send to the outer darkness all selfishness, all pride, all presumptuousness, all sexual deviance, all adultery, all pornography, all homosexuality, all greed, all envy. He has promised to burn all of it in his wrath forever and ever and ever and ever. And it is important, according to Peter, that you remember that. For you to live faithfully right now requires you to remember that judgment is real, it's promised, and it's coming. Second, remember. (laughs) Don't just remember his judgment. Remember his patience. Remember his kindness. Remember his mercy. Remember that though judgment is coming, even now he is patient. Even now he is calling all of us, all of us in our sin, all of us in our lusts, all of us in our envy, all of us in our greed, all of us in our pride, in his patience and his kindness to us. He calls us to come, to repent and find mercy. So remember that his judgments are terrible. 
Remember that his mercy is good. His patience is kind. He is not willing that any of his people would perish. And then he says here that we should be those in lives of holiness and godliness. So pursue, number three, pursue holiness. Pursue godliness. Um, There's a link here in this paragraph to chapter one. In chapter one, um, you have that famous chain of sanctification, the same famous uh, this outline of what does it look like for the people of God to pursue godliness and fruitfulness and holiness. It's where he, he draws the connection between add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control and self-control steadfastness and steadfastness godliness and then godliness overflowing in brotherly affection and brotherly affection to love and then love bears fruit. Fruitfulness. That as we remember the judgments of God, as we remember the mercy of God, um, that we would be a people grounded in faith and overflowing in a kind of virtue that, 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 that then um, bears fruit in knowing, and the knowing then um, uh, comes and, and produces self-control in us, and that self-control then allows us to, to stand steadfast in the faith, not wavering, not being tossed about by scoffers or sin, our own desires, and that steadfastness then produces a kind of godliness, and we begin to look like God and reflect God in the world, um, and that gets practiced in brotherly affection. I don't think that phrase means just kind of like warmness. It means that you like, and it's interesting it comes before love. Um, it, it means you actually just do sacrificial stuff for people, for one another. Um, and that then gives way as you practice these, um, this brotherly affection gives way to love. And then that love bears fruit in the world. So remember his judgments. Remember his mercy. And then set your life to intentionally pursuing holiness and godliness. And last, wait, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are waiting. So we wait, we turn from sin. We plead with others to turn from their sin to the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus. And we hope This is the the tension in this text. That even as we appreciate the mercy of God, the patience of God, the kindness of God, there must be in his people a longing that finally one day wickedness would be put away. That finally one day Rebellion would be put away. That finally one day lust would be put away. That finally one day greed would be put away. That finally one day that which still mars this world with death be cleansed. So we remember the judgments of God. We remember the mercy of God. We pursue holiness and we wait with hope. Let's pray. So Father, we don't, we don't think nearly often enough about your patience and your kindness. And I, and I think it's because we don't think often enough about your judgments and your holiness. And yet again, we come to a table where you yourself in the body and the blood of Jesus feed us, nourish us, strengthen us.
We come again to the God of the universe to worship you, find ourselves fed. So Father, I pray that we would even in bread and wine, consider again your patience and your kindness. In your name we pray, amen.